Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 149, recorded on January 19th, the Cloud Pod breaks formation. And I'm mostly shocked that it's still January. It, it does feel like it should be February already, right? This is already a really long year. It's just started, <laughs> it's just but started. it's already a really long year. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like it's a bit of a bleed over from 2021. I mean, we, we still have Log4j stuff. We still got other things going on in security space. Like, there's, there's just a lot going on these days in the cloud world. And yeah, we should call it 2021.16. Nice. Version 5 in some ways. I mean, yeah. I mean, but unfortunately, there there's a, seems to be a penance for people trying to kill all the comedians right now. And I don't, I'm not trying, you know. This is just 2020's way of saying you can't have fun anymore, I feel like, in some ways. Yeah. All right. Well, it is a l- relatively light news week. Um, so we, we pulled in some thought pieces here to talk about this week as well. Uh, and so first up, Silicon Angle hosted a guest blog from Paul Delory from Gartner on Gartner's six predictions of what is coming to cloud in 2022. And of course, I want to pass these by Jonathan and Ryan uh, to get their take on these and see what they think about them. Uh, unfortunately, Peter's out this week, uh, but uh, we will do without him. So just a quick note there about Peter. Uh, So first up of the Gartner items, the crisis level skills gap will compromise cloud innovation and execution. This is basically Gartner saying that the inability to hire talent that knows the cloud is going to slow down and break migrations. What do you guys think? (laughs) I wish. My, my fear is that I don't think it'll stop anyone. Yeah, no, uh, that's my think, fear yeah. is that we're just going to keep going down this path of like people who don't know what they're doing, just continuing to, uh, you know, to new to the cloud and then break stuff that we can go fix in a few years from now and say, hey, we're we're going to fix this terrible implementation you did. I don't know. Yeah, how many stories I hear just from friends and and you know through the industry and and then through my day job where it's like, yep, they just moved what they had and they put it over here, and it's expensive and. And no one likes it. Yeah, I mean, look, look at the rate of growth of cloud over the past few years. Though the the rate of training new people could not possibly keep up with with something like that. I mean, you need a like a fifteen year lead time, even more if you want people with experience. And everybody wants to hire people with experience. And very few places really offer really good mentorships or you know, on the job training anymore. I mean, it's not like being a being a mechanic or being an electrician or something where you can learn on the job. People don't want that. They want to hire somebody who's got twenty years experience in something that's only been around for five years. So yeah, I can I can see it being a, a real problem in terms of quality of, of output. But yeah, like you say, people just plod on ahead anyway. Yeah. Well mm-hmm. you know, Gardner says that you can you can help address this by uh, doing a couple things. First is prioritize a Kubernetes and DevOps skills training program in your company, as well as a talent enablement program, which is great, you know, but yeah, funnily enough, uh, which cloud do you even train people on these days? Is it AWS? Is it Oracle? Is it GCP? Is it Azure? Or you can try to train them on all of them because you're into this hybrid, you know, multi-cloud story that everyone thinks you need to have nowadays. Um, you know, what do you really train people in? Is a bit of a question mark. Uh, the next one they have is cloud teams will optimize for business outcomes, not technical implementation. And first of all, if you've been doing a cloud migration for the last few years and not thinking about the business outcome of that cloud migration, I think you are probably not very good at your job. So I don't know exactly what they're getting out of this one other than they, they seem to think that uh, people don't do this, but I, I hope you are because it's 
number one reason why you're doing this is because you're trying to support a business outcome. <laughs> yeah. So, so is Paul Deloria actually a real person, or is he some like really crappy AI that, that generates this, <laughs> this random this random block of text? <laughs> yeah, they unleashed him on Twitter, and this is what he came up with. Six predictions. Optimize for business outcomes. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have jobs if we didn't optimize for business outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I think this is another way of saying the same thing as we just did, which is this is this is targeting the people who just moved their servers from their data center into the cloud, right? The, the technical implementation is it's the data center in the cloud, but that doesn't meet the business outcomes, right? It doesn't perform. Um, it's more expensive. Um, and, you know, it's got all kinds of issues. So I think that's what... I don't know. I don't know. We you should, have to sort of squint and, and read through the article. We should, we should call them and ask them what they mean. Because I don't think you can have one without the other. If you don't have a good technical implementation, that won't be good for the business. It won't be a good business outcome. Well, what, what he argues in, in this uh, article is you cannot let debates over technical minutiae derail the quick transition to cloud services, even if that means making uncomfortable compromises in initial implementation quality. And then he goes on to say, however, you cannot abdicate your responsibility to keep business functions safe and highly available. Rather, you must implement flexible governance models, which I think we kind of agree with that at, at a high-level conception you know, phase, but it, you know, just a weird way to put it is, you know, I think you need to have both, but you don't get worried about one little issue with the technical detail that's preventing you from actually getting adoption. I mean, I think the best example of this I can come up with is, you know, people who are like, oh, well, I'm not going to buy RIs or savings plans this month because, you know, we're going to optimize and we're going to reduce the number of servers that we're using. And so, you know, we don't want to buy too many of these things. And, and you know, push comes to shove six months later, you still haven't optimized and you could have had six months of savings you could have already gotten. Um, and so, yes, it's maybe not ideal. You maybe have some waste, but in the short term, while you're trying to actually do the thing you want to do right, you could at least save some money for a year on a one-year RI purchase, for example. Yeah, you don't have to get many more than, well, five or six months in, maybe seven months in, depending on the plan you choose to, to start breaking even on that, even if you don't use it for the full term. But I think it kind of contradicts the first one, really. If, if you're not optimizing, if, if you're not... <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't. Like, I, well, I can't. It, gets, it gets better, Jonathan. So if you're already stumped, no, no, no. I can I can take yeah. you to the next one, which will get you really Number confused. Two. Number three, you can't you can't, you can't say Kubernetes is 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 the way to solve this, solve the skills gap, and then say you're not optimizing for technical implementation. I mean, they don't, they, those things don't go together. Yeah, Jonathan, Kubernetes is the answer for everything. You should know that by now. Yeah, <laughs> Kubernetes solves all problems. <laughs> uh, you know, so they, you know, they told you about the crisis level skills gap, but then they tell you in this third one, hybrid and multi-cloud adoption will increase operational complexity and cost, which is true. Yay. So we mm -hmm. got that one right. You should get the sound effects out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Our> survey says. <laughs> uh, you know, and then he says in here, everyone wants to say they're multi-cloud, but true multi-cloud architectures are relatively rare because they don't exist. So, like, frankly, mm -hmm. they just don't exist out there in the world. It, it's really you bought a company they're on Azure, keep them on Azure. You bought a company that's on yeah. Google, keep it on Google. You know, and, and you know he does have a good couple of recommendations here. Prioritizing a primary strategic provider. This is typically your all-in kind of thing, although it's mostly in nowadays with most of the cloud providers. And then uh, defining a workload placement policy, uh, which I don't even know how you really do this rubric, but uh, that's what they're recommending. Uh, is you kind of come up with some business rules that you'll use to basically determine which cloud you want to put something into. I mean, this is the one, this is the point of the article that I liked the most was, was that just because, you know, this is something that, you know, it's very relevant in my day job. And, you know, the idea of being hybrid or multi-cloud isn't having separate clouds. Like you said, it's, it's having, you know, the ability to operate in both seamlessly. That doesn't mean you're spreading your workload across both. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and nor should you. But it also allows you to pick, you know, the best in breed services. You know, like you know, I've long, long had a vision of expanding into Google Cloud for my day job, just because I like some of the security tools and evaluating workloads for that. You know, but also having that operate. I don't want to have two user bases. I don't want to have, you know, uh, operations teams that only have access or knowledge of one or the other. Like there's, there's a lot to operating a true multi-cloud without trying to expand your workload across both. Yep. It's strange that the cloud is, is, it's such an important thing to talk about in cloud, multi-cloud. I mean, we don't hear businesses going all in on FedEx or, uh, you know, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're multi-delivery service. We use UPS and FedEx. I mean, people do that because it's smart because, you know, maybe DHL is good for domestic. Maybe UPS is good for something else. It's It makes business sense to to choose the right solution for the problem that you have, so I don't. I'm not sure why multi multi cloud's kind of such a talking point in a way. I think I think it's it's misunderstood. The term itself, I think, is misunderstood. I think the right tool for the right job makes sense all the time, and I th- I think yeah, it's just it, it's a term that needs to go away. <laughs> I think it's because it's there's so much intrinsic specific knowledge, right? It's it's like learning a programming language. You know which AWS services do what? What's the API capable of? All those things, and and so I think that's sort of why this gets into that sort of, um, you know, that type of conversation because it becomes a religious argument about what's better. So no one's really having to do that for UPS. Well, I mean, I guess it's an investment to to, to learn new technology. That makes sense. I bet AMD and Intel are kicking themselves over TSMC. I mean, that, that's vendor locking. Yeah. I bet they wish they had alternate uh, silicon providers to go to. I mean, eventually Intel, <laughs> right, will get their get their act together, you assume. But yeah, it's not there today. Well, uh, the next one up is business resilience will be built into the application architecture. Uh, and they give us a couple things here. And one is build resilience into cloud native apps. And they use stateful Kubernetes as their example, which is never a great place to start out this conversation. Mm-mm. And then the second one, which I find hilarious, is redesigned IREs or isolated recovery environments for ransomware, uh, which you know is funny because they say it is a separate environment from production and dev tests, and it has dedicated systems and immutable data vault and no network access to production, which makes the question, how did you get the data into the immutable data vault to begin to actually do this? Ah, maybe it's got, it's got connectivity from production, but not to production. Because, <laughs> you know, that's how networks work. Right, exactly. That's exactly how things work. Uh, that one, that one, you know, yes, your cloud native applications needs to be thinking about your resiliency story. It's all architecture at the end of the day and how you think about it. Um, so I, I agree in principle with this. I don't necessarily agree with his two recommendations on where to start, but you know, I'll let that one go. Yeah. Next up is distributed cloud will displace private and hybrid cloud initiatives. And as soon as someone can explain to you what a hybrid cloud initiative it is and a distributed cloud initiative and how they're different, I will be super happy. But uh, that's what he's doing with. <laughs> Uh, and ba- <laughs> aren't all clouds distributed clouds? Isn't that the point of them being clouds? <laughs> yeah. It's the same PowerPoint presentation, but one has a lot more references to the edge without defining what the edge actually is. Yeah, and this is basically what I kind of predicted in the years that we need a we need a good solution to be able to deal edge versus uh, mid edge and you know cloud compute and how do you deal with those different areas? And so a lot of this when you read it is about you know rethinking your connectivity evaluating hyper-converged infrastructure and evaluating cloud substations uh, to basically help you get there. But, this, you know, this is really, again, I think the challenge to adoption of this in 22 is still that we need a framework that makes it easy uh, as it's too much too much mind-lifting for most developers to kind of come up with what this is. 
uh, and make it easy. And then the final yeah. one, containers and service will become an infrastructure foundation for application platforms. And if you've been doing cloud for any length of time, you know, you've known this several years ago. So thanks, Gartner, for mm-hmm. finally catching up on this one. Uh, but basically, their, their end argument is that you should be doing containers or serverless uh, or evaluate serverless container platforms, which I super enjoyed in their quote here. Because <laughs> I don't know what a serverless container platform is, but you know, I guess that's K-native at the end of the day. But uh, yeah, these are trying. Yeah, welcome to, you know what, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is why you should trust Gartner, because they're cutting edge thought leaders in the space. If, if, they're, if they're pimping serverless and containers, then did they have some customer that, you know, didn't renew, like Microsoft or <laughs> some some uh, endpoint protection service that didn't renew a, a uh, contract with them? Well, if it's containers, they're going after Google's business, mm-hmm. right? So, like, because Google's always leading that. Well, again, if you're renewing your Gartner subscription, I might recommend you send your money elsewhere <laughs> based off those. But, uh, you know, some of it's good good nuggets in there. So I'd have to take, it, take what works for your organization, throw away the rest, and move on down your day. Uh, well, if you've got, uh, want five considerations for saving more and wasting less on your cloud services, uh, Aaron Khanna, CEO of Archera, also dropped some nuggets on VentureBeat about five considerations for saving more and wasting less. Uh, so the first one, uh, he said, is your AWS bill will not give insights into the cost of your goods sold, uh, which basically he summarized down to uh, looking at your bill isn't good enough. You need to roll costs of teams and projects so you can properly align them for your business. Interests. I think this is good. This is actually one I actually like this one. You can't just look at how much EC2 compute you're using and say, yes, I can now make an optimization or I can do something. Because where do you even start in that model? But being able to tag those resources to project teams or services or applications, you can now go yell at somebody for that spend and say, why are you spending so much of it and how do you spend less? I'm actually on a data spelunking mission trying to price out complexity and define a metric for the the, the cost of an increase of supporting a product when you make it more complex. Uh, just because of you know this type of you know, basically oversight typically. So it's like you, you look at your AWS cloud spend because you have a very easy and accessible metric, but then you forget about those sort of intangible costs. Um, and, you know, it can be sort of problematic. So trying to define this so that you, you know, just basically so you can present it back to the business just so people think about it really. Um, don't even have to agree on what the metric is. Yeah, getting a per transaction cost for... Um, for anything that your application does in an account would be would be awesome. As long as that per transaction cost isn't, you know, down to a, a point where it's just like, oh, that's just a rounding error. Because there had to be meaningful cost per transaction. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. otherwise people would say, well, it just doesn't really make a difference even if it's a penny, a penny of transaction, unless you're in the billions of transactions and then they don't do what you want to do there. But you know, if you're you do get a baseline, it's a good metric to have, it's a good metric to track through the system and, and work through. Oh, you say it's only a penny, but that's what cross-IC traffic costs, and everyone complains about that. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, they also don't understand. You guys saw Office Space, you know? Come on. <laughs> they also don't understand uh, how much how chatty those databases really are, <laughs> cross-IC mm. traffic-wise. Yeah. The next one is historical data alone will not accurately forecast future utilization and costs or potential cloud service savings, and I sort of get that, like, but. You know, it does help you figure out your savings plan or committed use discounts for right now based on what you're currently running. But yes, it's not going to factor in that, you know, November 26th every year on Black Friday, your data, your system's going to get crushed with low because you're a Black Friday retailer. And that's not going to be in your 12 months of data. If you if you run that report on November 1st, you're not going to see it. So, I, yeah, you always need to have business context in relation to your data. 
And if you're only using tools like Cloud Health or CloudAbility or these other tools just do one thing based on historical data, you are missing uh, potentially things that you could be saving or thinking about in advance that you could save money on when you actually need them in the future. So, I, you know, relatively okay with this other than, you know, I, you do need historical data for some things. So don't don't discount it. And I'd also argue that this matters a lot less when you're in the cloud, right? Like the whole point is that I don't have to as accurately forecast my utilization. I do need to have, you know, controls over my cost, but the whole point is that I'm using an elastic, elastic, you know, infrastructure that can scale for those things I didn't account for. Yeah, you don't need capacity planning. You don't need to know three years in advance or six months in advance that you're going to need new servers, ideally. Agreed. Next one is uh, high coverage does not mean quality coverage. And, uh, you know, so this is one of the metrics that's actually in the FinOps Foundation is that you should have a very high savings percentage uh, or savings plan or RI coverage percentage of your compute resources. That way you're not wasting money. Um, and I and I agree that there's other options than just savings plans or those things. Again, you can do spot instances. You could redesign your applications, use serverless or other similar items. But again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if that's a six-month roadmap for you to take advantage of Spot or a six-month roadmap for you to take advantage of, save, you know, a re-architecture of your application, then you know, sign up for a year, get the savings. And Jonathan pointed out rightly that you know, ROI is not that long to get value out of those things, even if you only use it for five or six months. And to get feature development right is long, you know, in a lot of cases. Like we want low iteration time, but like a year for, for a major application overhaul where you can redesign to support ephemeral resources, like, yeah, that's at least a year. Yeah. I mean, show me that project that's most successful in less than a year. And I'll, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've not yet to see it when someone's taking on this track, this path. And mm-hmm. yeah. I, I kind of wish that that last one, high coverage doesn't mean quality coverage. I, I kind of rewrite that in a way and say, there is no one size fits all solution for, for saving in the cloud. And for some people, savings plans absolutely make the, the most sense. And for some people, spot makes the most sense. And for some people, something else makes the most sense. And and to to look at any list and say, oh, yes, we should be doing this is is only part of the story. And you probably find that it's a combination of all those things. And there's always some risk in spending money up front. I mean, who knows? The COVID might come along, your business may collapse. There's so many things you can't predict. So, you know, you, yeah. you do our I mean, best. I mean, how many vendors, you know, for companies that were decimated by you know, COVID, like, you know, travel companies, like a lot of them called their vendors and said, we're not paying you. <laughs> and, you know, if the vendor was willing to work with them and to do things, then, you know, they, you know, they're still vendors today. And, and as those customer companies recover, they've now been able to, you know, sub, you know, take advantage of those relationships, those, those advantages. So even those commitments, you know, I'm sure if you're in a situation where, you know, you're in a bad, bad spot, you can work out some negotiation with your vendor, especially if they're a partner, like you're supposed to be of a cloud vendor. Uh, you know, yes, there's risk there. They can tell you, "Sorry, you had to, you owe us the money," but then you go bankrupt. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's in their best interest to partner with you to get that money eventually, versus force you into a bad, bad practice in the short term. Yeah. Uh, basically, the next one is savings plans alone are not enough to maximize cloud service savings. And when I read through what he's saying here. He's basically saying savings plans don't give you as good a savings as RIs. And so you, know, you should definitely do the math. You should definitely look at this and you should figure out which is the right solution savings plan or RIs or you know, instance-based setups in certain regions. I and mean, if you have that level of predictability to do that, yes, you can get much better discounts uh, than what you can with savings plan. But savings plan is a nice generic model that allows you to move that spend around and change things without causing uh, wasted utilization here. So well, I, I agree you need to look at it and you should have a spreadsheet that tracks all this stuff uh, and you, you analyze these things. I don't know that... 
in many cases, savings plan was always the right choice for me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you don't want to get stuck on on the the old technology for three years when you could potentially have you know switch to the the, the Epic processors or or Graviton or something else, which come along with huge savings and and performance differences. Uh, I mean, if you, if you compare what you think you're saving based on your your plan three years ago to what you could be saving now if you sort of started again. I would think savings plans make the absolute most sense because you can move those workloads around without worrying about being locked into a particular instance type. Yeah. And you, you definitely get less discount. But again, the benefit, you know, you get to take advantage of the new instance type. You get to take advantage of moving to ARM versus staying on Intel or AMD. Like there's so many advantages that you get on the other side of it. I think you do need to be wary of these things. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, the, I think the, the main point is there's no silver bullet. Right. There's, mm-hmm. You can't just say savings plans is better than RIs because you're going to have that one workload that's been on that EC2 server for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's not moving, you know, like and, you know, no matter how many times someone tells you that they're going to refactor it or move it or scale it pro- appropriately, they're not. You know, they haven't done it in the last two years. They're not going to do it now. And on the other hand, you get you know the SRE team that say we need to we need to up, up, update these instance types from, you know, 4X large to 9X large. And uh, that change gets made because of performance issues or something else. All of a sudden, all of those RIs you're paying for are just sitting there burning money, not being used. And, and now you're paying sort of 200% on top of the original cost of those things for these other instances, which you hadn't ever planned on spending. So like maintaining visibility, I think. Uh, uh, there should be some better tooling around maintaining visibility of what you've spent money on RIs um, and what you're utilizing. I think across, you know, in big organizations, that's, that's pretty hard to keep track of. Yeah, that would be very cool. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to be able to pick an instance type that's out of a pool that you've kind of, you know, a company pool at the organizational level where, you know, maybe this dev team went from C5s to C6s, but your workload will be fine with the C5s and they're already paid for an upfront spend consideration, you know, then I can just pull from that pool. Um, There could be really cool things you could do there that I think, you know, some companies have built these type of technologies, but again, this is something undifferentiated heavy lifting that AWS and GCP and Azure could build and should, I think, in the long term. Yeah, well, that that'd be neat. In a you know, in, in your Terraform definition, you, you don't specify an instance type. You just say, find me something that's already paid for. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. The last one is very upfront spend amounts across commitments, and this is basically consider blending your savings uh, commitments either with upfront, no upfront, or partial upfront. Uh, don't just go with a one size fits all option here as well. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is really about managing your cash flow. You know, a startup with not a lot of cash is going to probably go with no upfront commitments, and that's typically a default thing, but uh, you know, company that has a lot of cash on the books, they're probably going more upfront to get the better discount opportunity. But um, you know, again, blending this, you know, is not a bad idea. But again, you have to have the models, you have to have the forecasting, you have to have the ability to do this. Uh, and of course, you know, our uh, the CEO of our chair, of course, was trying to sell you his solution, which helps you do this. Uh, but <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, you know, this one to me is really just a financial question of like, how are you managing your cash flow? All right. Well, that's it for that. Uh, so you go. Five considerations for saving more and wasting less in your cloud services. I learned nothing, but you know, it's good chat. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is, your mileage may vary. Every case yeah. is different. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Having good tools. This is hard. Excel yeah. is good. Yeah, it, yeah all of yeah. that. It's hard. Hire us to help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
All right. Well, let's move on to AWS news. Uh, it's been a rough week in the security space for AWS. Uh, you know, we talked about Chaos DB and the Azure place. We've been beating up Azure, and of course, AWS had to stumble out the gate here in 2022. Uh, Orca Security, uh, you know, wants to be a pain in AWS side this year and published two blog posts about what it considers major security issues in the AWS platform. Uh, the first one is called Breaking Formation, a vulnerability against, of course, CloudFormation, and the other one is Superglue, which is an issue against the Glue service. So let's start with uh, CloudFormation. Uh, Oracle security researcher Za Pahima discovered a CloudFormation vulnerability that can allow file and credential disclosure of internal AWS services. The zero day, which AWS mitigated within six days, was an XXE, or XML external entity vulnerability found in the CloudFormation service. The exploit could have been used to leak sensitive files found on the vulnerable service machine or make server-side requests accessible to the unauthorized disclosure of credentials of an internal AWS infrastructure. By leveraging the XSE, uh, XXE vulnerability in the way CloudFormation renders templates, they were able to read files and perform HTTP requests on behalf of the server, and the server contained multiple service binaries containing AWS server-side logic, as well as configuration files for connecting to internal AWS endpoints and services. The researcher believes... Given the data found on the host that an attacker could abuse this vulnerability to bypass tenant boundaries, giving them privileged access to any resource in AWS. Because they didn't want to impact the service, the researcher went no further, and they did test it with a bucket and pre-signed S3 URL of account they owned. Uh, Amazon responded to this with their own blog post, saying the issue allowed some viewing of local configuration files on an AWS internal host or attempted unauthenticated HTTP GET requests from the same host, and the researcher used HTTP GET capability to obtain a set of locally accessible credentials specific to the host. Neither the local configuration file access nor the host-specific credentials permitted access to any customer data or resources. It's funny because I, I was late to the party on learning this, so I, you know, I just I read about it in the news about yeah, about a day and a half after it was sort of breaking news, and I I took this as more of a win by AWS because I was late to it and didn't have all the drama of while people were figuring out like what it had access to. Um, this is a story where defense in depth mitigated the risk down to something where they probably could not have exploited getting customer data. It's something to be fixed. It's something that's an exploit. Um, it's something that will be in their test cases from now on, I'm sure. But this is why you have least privileged policies in, in production runtimes. And this is why you specifically craft what permission servers have in so that you can mitigate that risk. And so I, I, I think this is a win. I knew it didn't like XML. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think the one issue with this that, uh, you know, in the real-time moments that it was happening, right, so Orca drops this blog post on, I think it was like a Wednesday morning or a Thursday morning, um, and then basically Amazon didn't actually have their blog post up for almost six or seven hours. Um, there was a you know a couple of people on Twitter. Scott Piper, who's pretty pretty popular in the security Twitter AWS space, you know, he thought there was a huge issue. And then you know Colm, who's an Amazon person, you know, basically responded that this is not the big deal. Then the CTO of Orca walked it back a little bit. All this stuff should be addressed as part of a joint disclosure between AWS and Orca. You know, this happened in September, was fixed in September, and now after it expired this window, basically they published the blog post. So Amazon had to know this was going to happen. It just it could have been handled a lot better by AWS. And so it question, you know, brings up the question of trust. Like, do, you know, just because Orca published a blog post, we know about this, or would AWS have disclosed it to us? And if it, you know, if there's other people out there doing research against AWS and they're not publishing these things, there could be other things that we don't know about that are not being addressed. Or, you know, again, transparency is important. And I, I do sort of worry about that part of this picture. But 
you know, because it's sort of implied when you when you hear the CISO of Amazon talk that, you know, they've never had a major issue in the last 15 years of the AWS cloud, which you know can't be true, just, you know, knowing that we know about yeah. security. But, you know, Number one target. You know, yeah, again, if it's, it's all about them sweeping under the rug, then, you know, that means there could be all kinds of things that we don't know about that could be potentially dangerous to our systems. And the only way they'll disclose it to you is, of course, if it actually got to customer data. Right. I mean, that's the other thing, too, about this, though, because, you know, like the Orca Securities original report was a little speculative in what it could do and exploit. And I think that the context is key there. So from an Amazon perspective, they were able to get local temporary ephemeral credentials from the file system and use those to access certain internal services. Maybe they didn't think it was worthy of disclosing, right? That's a different, it's a different perspective there. The minute, you know, Orca Security comes out and says that, you know, they owned this server and they were able to access all internal services, which was effectively, to paraphrase what the original post was, it becomes a different thing, right? Now AWS has to respond. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that could have been handled differently. Um, and But I'm guessing this is just miscommunication between Orca and AWS. And yeah, a coordinated announcement would have avoided all of this. Yeah, definitely would have helped uh, tremendously. I, I kind of feel like um, Orca stepped up the game a little bit, you know, with, with Wiz. Uh, releasing all the vulnerability, the Azure vulnerabilities, amongst other things, they've, they've been very much in the media with their security research. I kind of feel like it's a bit of a, an orca hold my beer kind of moment. Like, right, well, let's go try and find something and, and make a big. Uh, I don't think there's anything new. I've worked with other security vendors in the past. They're also, you know, that's there's a large part of their of their sales pitch is that you know they have a team of you know, crack researchers that are finding the vulnerabilities before the bad guys do. Yeah. And, and you know, Orca, of course, going to tout this because it helps their brand. And, you know, we found this major or, you know, AWS thing and our security product will help you be protected is the pitch you're trying to make. So, uh, so that one, you know, that one, you know, the, the feedback from Amazon, you know, this is pretty benign. You know, yes, there was, you know, they saw the names of some of the Amazon services and some of the internal service accounts. But ultimately, you know, Amazon says that if he had actually tried to use it, it wouldn't have worked. So again, it goes back to the researcher believes, given the data found, he could have done something, but it was never proven that was possible. Uh, the next one, though, is a little bit more troublesome. <laughs> so uh, no one was named as the sole researcher on this one, but Orca security research team discovered a critical security issue in the AWS Glue service that could allow an actor to create resources and access data of other AWS Glue customers. The exploit was a complex multi-step process and was ultimately responsible due to an internal misconfiguration in AWS Glue. Uh, an AWS principal engineer was named with this quote uh, in this blog. So hopefully he's still an employee of AWS because I was kind of surprised to see an Amazon engineer actually named. But again, going back to our point earlier, clearly they're coordinating and they're talking. Uh, so why Amazon was caught flat-footed is a little weird. But the quote from uh, AWS principal engineer Anthony Rutroso, at AWS security is everyone's job and our highest priority. We take vulnerability reports extremely seriously and we spend a lot of time thinking about and implementing security invariants to keep our customers safe and we appreciate when that work can be informed or improved by independent security research. Today, Orca Security, a valued AWS partner, helped us detect and mitigate a misconfiguration before it could impact any customers. We greatly appreciate their talent and vigilance and we would like to thank them for their shared passion of protecting AWS customers through their findings. Uh, the exploit apparently would allow an attacker to obtain a credentials to a role within AWS Services' own account, which provides us uh, full access to the internal service API in combination with an internal misconfiguration in the Glue internal API. They were able to further escalate privileges within the account to the point where they could have unrestricted access to all resources for the service in the region, including full administrative privileges. 
looking at the data that could be accessible, or could confirm that they would be able to access data owned by other AWS Glue customers and the user accounts under their control and tested and verified that the issue gave them the ability to access data from their other accounts without affecting any other AWS customer data. They go on to say that they were able to assume roles in AWS customer accounts that were trusted by the Glue service only. Query and modifying AWS Glue service-related resources in a region. This includes, but is not limited to metadata for Glue, dev endpoints, workflows, crawlers, and triggers. Um, AWS did respond to this one as well. AWS confirms that a misconfiguration permitted the researcher to use credentials as the Glue service, and they state there was no way that this could have been used to affect customers who do not use the AWS Glue service. AWS has fixed this issue as well, and they wanted to thank Orca for both reports. Uh, you know, so this one, you know, there's a fix for this. Uh, you, it's called IMS Metadata Version 2. Uh, it was released you know, about a year ago. <laughs> so if, if Amazon was using their own dog food and using their own IMS v2 um, and some metadata, they would not have had this problem. But uh, this is definitely the reason why uh, they built this particular service. So Amazon currently has some tech debt to work down <laughs> to get to IMS v2 uh, as this misconfiguration should not have happened, of course. As most of us do, I will, I will make myself vulnerable and attest that I haven't really enabled this out at my use cases either uh, just because it's this is a you're not sure where it's going to break and it's one of those things there's there's very little return in this change other than the potential of being exploited after a couple of the layers and so this is hard you want to you want to do the right thing you want to make time for it but it's also got to be when you make sense when it makes sense yeah but yeah i mean it's it's really bad when this is pretty bad for Amazon. There's also misconfiguration, which makes it doubly, doubly bad and, and very complicated. But, uh, you know, it's just a... It's the misconfiguration and asterisks instead of like a defined principle. Like, it, I, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's what I read into this is like it's it's misconfiguration. You can take a lot of ways, but it's just you could say it's not least privileged. Yeah. And so I now have to apologize to Asia for giving them so much crap. <laughs> no. <laughs> because uh, nah, we'll just take Amazon down too. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> equal opportunist complaining about security in our glass houses yeah, no, I, I, both, both of them screwed up on this both of them need to fix these issues and and again i think there's disclosure requirements that need to come out of these things uh and again it, it erodes trust again six hours from this blog post to when they respond to it and the response is you know two paragraphs that are very high level it's just you'd like to see more I'd like to see a full security blog post about this and and what actually happened and you know, I'd like to see what they learned. Yeah, yeah what they learned. I'd like to see what I'd like to see what Amazon, you know, because once Amazon knew this, they had to do their own testing. So did they actually validate that any of these things worked? You know, the one thing that I do say is they, you know, they went through five years of glue, which as they said in the in the thing that they reviewed uh, every log since the service had launched to see if it had ever been impacted oh. or or integrated, which means that Amazon is storing a ton of logs. <laughs> yeah. Um as well, that's a lot of data. Yeah, there's a good <laughs> there's a good Athena bill coming to somebody in the security team. <laughs> Uh, but you know, so you know, it's impressive that they were able to actually go back and vet this had never been exploited by anyone but the yeah, researcher. Fifteen minutes at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, that's there, there's definitely some wins in this thing, and again, that's kind of goes back to the point of Amazon has some great things they did in this response. They just miffed the delivery of it at the end of the day, and that's and you know, and why did it, why did they wait for the ninety days, knowing that Orca was going to publish anyways? Why not get ahead of it? way in advance and say, hey, you know, we just fixed these two issues we want to let you know about. Like, it's such a, they could have turned into such a win for them and said they they bobbled the football at the one-yard line. Yeah, that's a missed opportunity for sure. And, you know, it's a rough time of year for for coordinating these things with, with all COVID and the holidays and all these things that was while this is going on, but still, 
it's definitely uh, but again both these things mess. happened in september <laughs> so they had october they had november they had december yes you know there's reinvent there there's the holidays i get those are distractions but again like this is this is a key tenet of of cloud is trust and if you violate mm-hmm. that it's hard to rebuild so yeah we'll see mm-hmm. On, on the other hand, though, if there are other Amazon services which could be could have been vulnerable to the same type of exploit because of their use of the old metadata endpoint somehow, maybe they didn't want to um, publicize the the fact that they they hadn't got this this covered. Well, but or again, what kind of other things? I made aware of an issue. We we remediated that immediate issue. And then, you know, we, knowing that there's a disclosure period, we wanted to vet all of our other systems. And so we did a full in-depth security audit and we identified, you know, any other areas where this potentially could be exploited in the future and we hardened it. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that should have been the story for sure. And But I, I kind of wonder if they were too busy remediating those things <laughs> to write the story. Or, or that, you know, the remediation of these are things that caused, you know, massive outages for them in December. <laughs> so, ah, you know, there's that too. There's those possibilities. <laughs> For those executives wanting to pay a mint to have Justin Broadley be your uh, you know, cloud spokesperson, <laughs> you can send requests to Justin at the cloud. <laughs> uh, Worth every penny, let me tell you. Yeah. A lot of apology tours I've had to do in my career for dumb things. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered all right well uh, next up uh, is you know just one more thing to make a close unhappy which is a new amazon console has been released uh, you know, I'm sure making Jonathan and Ryan super happy. Uh, there are some nice new features uh, in the new console experience, including widgets, because widgets are so 1997. Uh, and so they, uh, things like AWS Health, costs and usage, favorites, recently visited, and trusted advisor are now easy to click in widgets. Uh, and, you know, overall, uh, it looks a lot like the old one, but with the new lipstick. So it's I don't hate it, hate it, but I don't love it either. And... Yeah. You know, my big complaints about the console are still that, you know, decisions that I want to make are based on cost, and I want those cost decisions to be up front and center. Like, hey, I'm clicking to build a new thing. This is going to cost you money. Here's what, here's what your predicted cost is based on these parameters or assumptions. Um, that's the stuff that I like to see. I don't care about you linking me to their training or to the documentation or these other things. I know how to get there. I know other new people in the AWS world don't know how to get to those things quite as easily, but uh, the things I care about, uh, this console still does not really deliver for me. Yeah. I think that's my biggest gripe. I love the fact that you can configure it to suit your use case. What I hate is that half of the widgets that they made available on launch were guiding you to documentation and other ways to spend money in AWS. <laughs> like, eh, cool. You need those. Um, but, you know, like it, the idea of a configurable console fell really flat when I found out there's only like two widgets that I really cared about. Yeah. And even those are limited. Like even the, you know, the cost and usage one was what I was most excited about. Just telling me what's in my 
building dashboard. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't really tell me anything that I, I really want to know about the thing I'm working on right now. Like, hey, you're about to change this parameter or this configuration of the EVS volume. You're going to add, you're going to add 500 PIOPs to it. That's going to cost you an additional three grand. Like, that's stuff that I want to see. I want that real-time feedback of cost data in the system. And those are things that I wish the console was doing versus trying to make it easier for newbies to find data. Not that I don't want to help the newbies. I think they needed to, but they've already gotten integration to search. So when I search for EC2, now I get a thousand tech articles I don't care about. <laughs> I'm just trying to get to the EC2 console. Like, there are so many other ways they've, they've given that same the same capabilities. There's some multiple ways now that I I wish they would think about, like, what are the more advanced use cases now that we could enable? And, and you don't have to turn that cost thing on for everybody. That could be a toggle I have to do myself. Um, Nor should you, because if you don't have access to the billing and management console, that user experience was terrible because it would display all the cost data and give you all these pretty links. And if you click them, you got an error. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not 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 roll aware. It needs to be roll aware for sure. It does. In yeah. fact, I'd like to be able to, as an organization, define the dashboards per role so that when my SREs log in, they see this dashboard. And mm-hmm. when the FinOps people log in, they see the other dashboard. Probably not the cost one, though, because I'm scared to tell them how much that costs. I saw that when I logged in <laughs> yeah. earlier today. Yeah. First thing not I was, in my account. I turned that off, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. going to try and troubleshoot something, and the first thing I see is this many hundreds of thousand dollars. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, yeah. I'll be it, in the corner rocking myself <laughs> yeah. back together. Which in, a, which in a true organization is not even accurate because it's not the discounted rate or you know any reflection of any savings plans you have. It's just the pure rack rate you're seeing in those things. It's why the budget notifications are garbage, right? Because I, you know, for the cloud pod, I have a budget notification that goes off every every third day of the month because it's set to the savings plan price and not the pre-savings plan price, which is what alerts me on every month. Like, you're going to spend $400 and I have a minor heart attack. And then I go, oh, it's not that bad because it's not factoring in my savings plan anyway. And my bill goes out to be $140 like it is every month and I'm super happy. <laughs> so yeah. it's, just, it's just ridiculousness. Uh, all the way down. But, uh, you know, I, I give you A for effort, uh, not so much for actual results. All right, moving on to GCP. Uh, so this, this is an interesting blog post as well. Uh, 10 questions to help your board safely maximize your cloud opportunity. Uh, and I sort of was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. And I, started, yeah. I skimmed through it, and I realized that there's actually some really good stuff here that is not just board-related. I mean, it definitely helps a board with digital transformation and helping a comp- you know lead the company and the right ways to do things for safe, secure, and compliant adoption across Google things. Um, you know, and, and there's three things that Google highlighted that need to be addressed by the board, but ultimately Google broke it down to 10 questions that they believe will help a board of directors or really any executive management or anybody trying to do a cloud transformation uh, in a structured and meaningful discussion with their organization and its approach to the cloud. And so these 10 questions... First one is, how is the use of cloud technology being governed within the organization? Is there clear accountability assigned? And is there clarity of responsibility and decision-making structures? Um, so I think this is important. This is all about governance. And do you have the right governance in your cloud? The next one is, how well does the use of cloud technology align with and support the technology and data strategy for the organization? And ideally, the overarching business strategy in order that the cloud approach can be tailored to achieve these right outcomes. Again, Kind of making fun of what we talked about with the garden earlier. Like, is your business strategy aligned to your cloud strategy? <laughs> Do you have a good story there? Uh, again, I think another great one there. The third one is: uh, Is there a clear technical and architectural approach for the use of cloud that incorporates the controls necessary to ensure the infrastructure and applications are deployed and maintained in a secure state? I think this is difficult for most companies to figure out in their first six months of a cloud journey. I think this is something you're developing, but this is definitely an area that most companies will say, "I don't know," because this is the hard part: is <laughs> figuring out these controls and how these controls map. Uh, initially, I mean, and you get a ton of mappings and you get a ton of things from Google and GCP uh, and AWS to help you do this. But ultimately, your 
your governance process is probably the slowest part of your business. <laughs> and it takes them the longest to understand how these controls are going to change uh, and how to address those. And so this is an area that I think most companies will find they have a gap, at least the first six months of cloud, as they're trying to educate you know, compliance on what's changing. And it's important to realize that the, where the gap is, right? The gap doesn't necessarily make you more more or less secure. The gap makes it harder to prove. And, th you know, that's, I had a really hard time with past companies trying to sort of prove that, you know, and establish that. Let's let's measure the risk. Let's treat it as the emergency that it's warranted for, you know. And, and you know, some of these things are, we can't prove necessarily that we didn't allow any changes or didn't do any things. And, but we probably didn't because we have people who care about our products and how to operate with excellence. We're going to get there, you know, get the, get the evidence eventually. But it is one of those things that I find funny with how companies adopt a new technology. It's a lot of the sky is falling. Or if we're going to have a uh, Google governance as a service product this year, <laughs> I don't know how that would work, but <laughs> I don't know either, but I, would, I like to see it. And as long as yeah. I come up with this, it's going to be Google, right? Yeah, I would probably pay for it. Yeah. Honestly, it would. <laughs> yeah. uh, next up here in the list: How is the organization structure and operating model evolving to both fully leverage cloud, but also to increase the likelihood of secure and compliant adoption? Which I think is a great question. Super. That many organizations don't think about is, you know, if Conway's law is part of your, you know, part of your belief system that you know your structure of your organization results in your software architecture. Um, then this is an area that as you think about cloud native and you think about cloud adoption and you think of these things like this is an area to focus on and think about how do I change my cloud structure to meet what I ultimately want to get as my outcome for my business uh, as part of this deal. I don't have any face tattoos, but if I did, it would be make the secure thing the easy thing because <laughs> I say that enough times where it would just be easier if I had it written across my forehead. Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree with this more. Agreed. These this questions are great, actually. If anyone's concerned for their job security, just write these down and drop one every couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have the answers, too, though. Yeah. But, like, and then be able to execute. Like, yeah. this depends on how much time you're trying to buy. That's right. Now, I've been thinking about how risk and control frameworks being adjusted. With <laughs> 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 oh, really, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Uh, next up, has a skills and capabilities assessment been conducted in order to determine what investments are needed across the organization and training? Uh, this is a great one because many companies just think it's the cloud, it's the data center in the sky. And so I can use the same people. And that's those people can definitely transition and they can get there, but not without the tooling, not without the education, not without the, you know, the investment in them. And so I think that's a huge one uh, that you need to deal with. Uh, we just talked about the risk and control frameworks being adjusted with an emphasis on understanding how the organization's risk profile is changing and how the organization is staying with the risk within the risk appetite. So yeah, I move all my stuff to Google or to AWS and I put it all in one region and one availability zone. Uh, I've now increased my risk potentially if I have something more uh, reliable in my current data center. So again, those things need to be considered and adjusted uh, as part of your risk and control framework. And vice versa. Like I've seen, I've seen companies move to the cloud where they they go really big into high availability and active active serving, where they were in a single data center before, and that made sense. And yeah. so they're complaining that this is super expensive, and they don't really have well their the use case where they can you know where they need to be that available where they you know. Well, I think so. they, I think they get the Kool Aid of you know the Amazon technical guy in there saying you know everything's going to fail. You need to be planning for failure. Uh, multi AZ, multi region, multi multi multi, and you do all that work, and then you spend a ton of money on data transfer costs <laughs> between those regions <laughs> and zones, uh, and then that becomes very expensive. And and yeah, I think you know the, the fact that DR now isn't free. 
because a lot of companies for a long time did DR where they, you know, every time they bought new hardware, the old hardware they were pulling out of their data center, they shipped, they shipped to the DR site and it was already amortized and had no cost to them. And so, and everyone kind of winked at it and was like, yeah, yeah, there's capacity there and we'd sort of run, but, you know, we'd do this drop order to Dell or HP and we'd get a bunch of servers shipped to us along with everybody else, which is unrealistic. Um, <laughs> but that was the model that these companies did. And so the, there was just no cost to DR for them because it was just old equipment that they were just shipping to the old data center and then, you know, hoping for the best and, and this kind of... But when you start paying for this thing by the hour or by the gigabyte, you know, there's suddenly a cost to your DR and these conversations need to be had with your product team and say, what is, what's the actual risk tolerance that we have? What are our customers willing to pay for? Are, you know, are we... Are we willing to do active active or is active passive good enough? Or does, you know, maybe even active cold is fine, you know, with a, pr- a plan to recover within, you know, two or three days is adequate for most companies. You know, you really have to decide that on a service by service basis in many companies. And a lot of companies and product management in particular have not thought about those questions because it's never been a cost they've had to worry about. Or a concern at all. Like, you know, when you think about the options that you have with uh, elastic infrastructure where you can do a pilot light where you can just have, you know, the data existing in the the DR region like that. There's so many more options than there used to be, you know, where you had to have you either had, you know, you moved your entire IP space to be served by a different environment or you had a replica hardware if you were doing it right or not, um, which is more often the case. But and so now and, you know, product teams in the data center, they weren't thinking about where that data was, that it was on hardware that cost this much. Like product teams did not have to think about any of these things, and now they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is really a board problem, so I'm going to highlight it quickly, which, which is how are independent risk and audit functions addressing their approach? This is this is an EOI question. This is this one's definitely a board <laughs> one. I can't, I can't make this one apply to most of you. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. The next one is how are regulators and other authorities being engaged in order to keep them informed and abreast of the organization strategy and of the plans for migration-specific business processes and data sets. Yeah, so if you're a bank and you decide to go to the cloud and you don't tell your regulator, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> so that one's good. Uh, next up is, how is the organization prioritizing resourcing to enable the adoption of cloud, but also to maintain adequate focus on managing existing and legacy technologies? And so this is an interesting one because a lot of companies get super excited about the shiny new cloud, and they're like, we're not going to invest in our data center anymore, and they plot out a cloud migration, and the finance team has all their budgets up on this thing, and then you're like, well, our migration's five years, and now we need to refresh our hardware three years into it because our data center is going to be end of life. You know, the hardware that's there or not, it's, you know, it's valuable. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, but we're moving to the cloud. And now they have a huge CapEx hit in the middle of their cloud migration. So again, this is an area where you got to think about these things. You got to have a plan. You got to have a long-term vision. Uh, and if you're, you think your migration is going to take a year, triple it is my recommendation. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, if that hardware is good enough for DR, then it's good enough for production for another couple of years. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everything's gambling, right? Like, and so it's like, all right, let's roll the dice. How much risk are you willing to take as a business? That, yeah. again, is the question. And again, that might be the decision you make is that we're willing to take the risk and, and send that hardware from three years to five years and, and let it ride out. But again, you know, then you get delays in year two or year three of your migration or something happens, you buy a company and now you're doing something, you know, there's all these distractions that happen that you still need to take care of your legacy uh, in addition to your new so keep that in mind. And then the final one is the organization consuming and adopting the cloud provider set of best practices and leveraging the lessons that the cloud provider will have learned from their other customers. And this is where making sure you have a partnership with your cloud vendor is super important and not just treating them like a vendor uh, because your cloud provider is not just a vendor. They are a partner who is going to make or break your company based on their availability and their best practices and their architecture uh, and your adoption of those things and adopting them in the right way. And so making sure you have a good, solid foundation with your solutions architects, your 
TAMs, your support cases, your account rep, they understand your business, your strategic part. They should be part of strategic conversations that I would recommend in all cases. And I would expand that to any third-party software that you are buying. You should no longer think of them as vendors. Like it's as everything moves to more, you know, providing services either internally or externally. If you're not partnering with your vendors and understanding their roadmap, providing them feedback on features that you want developed, um, you're you're just missing a huge opportunity to have someone develop software to your needs. And you're, the expectation that they'll just be there to fix your issues and prioritize you as customer number one when you're having an issue, like that's a risk that I would not be willing to take. Yeah. And it's not like you're, you know, leasing copy machines from this vendor. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if this vendor doesn't service your copy machine the right way, you can just call somebody and they'll bring a forklift and bring those ones out and put new ones in. You know, cloud migration or a cloud journey or integrating Kafka or other SaaS services. Really, anytime you're adopting a SaaS service into your platform, you need to have that connectivity. I think that doesn't buying servers from HP or Dell, I don't know if that's still you still need to go to that level of in-depthness. But, you know, those are not bad conversations to have with your vendors. Don't be hostile to your vendor, especially if you want them to help you in a pinch. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the same for beating them down on cost, actually. I mean, sometimes you, you can drive the hardest possible bargain you, you like, even, especially when it comes to software. But then you ask, you ask for support, you ask for something exceptional, and you may not get it. Whereas, you know, if you don't beat them down quite so much on cost, I know um, I've had experience with Cisco and Cisco partners for this very, this very same thing. You know, if you beat them down on cost, they are not going to give you the same level of support <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're, not a, you're, not, you're not making money for them. Agreed. All right. Well, that's it for that article. But I think it was a good one. Again, you can be the Jonathan thing and take these questions to your next governance meeting. and <laughs> Ask these really <laughs> smart questions and get a promotion to CIO and then be screwed when you don't know what that means. Uh, it's definitely a way to go. <laughs> it hasn't stopped any of us before. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to understanding Firestore performance with the new key visualizer from Google. Uh, of course, Firestore is a serverless, scalable, NoSQL document database and is ideal for rapid and flexible web and mobile app development and uniquely supports real-time client device syncing to the database. To get the best performance, though, and get the best out of the Firestore auto-scaling uh, and load balancing, you need to ensure the data layout of your applications allows requests to be processed optimally, particularly as your user traffic increases. And to help with this, GCP is launching a key visualizer, an interactive performance monitoring tool for Firebase. Key Visualizer generates visual reports based on Firestore documents accessed over time and that will help you understand the optimize the access patterns of your database as well as troubleshoot your performance issues. And if you look at the link uh, and look at this thing, it's it's quite the Rosarch chart <laughs> uh, that only a data nerd would love. Uh, as you see yellow, you see red, you see all the different colors to help you identify where your shards are hot, all the hotspots, all the heat maps, all the things that you want, and they show you what your patterns should look like <laughs> if they're evenly distributed. They'll show you what their patterns look like if they're sequential keys or you know what happens when a sudden traffic increase happens and the heat map lights up like a big yellow Christmas tree. So all these options are here in this in this blog post. A really great tool if you're in the performance management space and you're dealing with a sharding database structure like Firestore. Next week, Oracle announces uh, autonomous Firestore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they can. Is Firestore open source? Is that a possibility? No, I don't, no, I don't think so. Um, it's very very neat technology, but it, wouldn't it be nice if we would just do this for you? Yeah. Well, it's hard, right? Because it's it has a lot to do with your data and the structure of your data. And I think that you know the only way you really learn, you know, the data and how it's accessed is by providing 
you know, visibility into this. And this is, you know, I think DBAs have been pouring over Excel spreadsheets for, for years trying to like suss out these things. And so the fact that you can turn it into something like a heat map is pretty cool and impactful for developers who aren't going to spend that level of time researching it. The DBAs will fix it. No, but I mean, if, <laughs> if, uh, if you can generate a heat map and show me which are the hot keys and which are the hot shards, and which then, then surely you could also automate the, the process by which you could make changes to that. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's the natural next step. Constantly fight the application for data structure. Yeah, writing writing down predictions for twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Google next. <laughs> yep. All right, Azure is up next with uh, announcing price reductions for their Azure Confidential Computing. Uh, they're reducing the Azure Confidential Compute instance type, the DCS v two and DCS v three series VMs by up to thirty three percent. This price reduction enables the data protection benefits of, of uh, Azure Confidential Computing with no premium compared to general purpose VMs on a per physical core basis. Uh, this, of course, went into effect on 1 uh, 1 2022. So if you might get a pleasant surprise in your Azure bill for January uh, if you're already using confidential computing. Awesome. It's, yeah, I mean, that's the, the fact that it's sort of transparent or not really transparent, but the same cost. Like it makes me wonder why they're not just moving to this model, or maybe they are. Maybe this is the first move. Well, it's like the enclaves thing, though. I mean, it's, it's not just a just a, a checkbox to turn the thing on. I mean, it requires a different a different way of building images and a different way of deploying and and, um, and using them. So it's that's a fair point. Okay, I haven't really heard much about enclaves recently, have we? In fact, since <laughs> the announcement, <laughs> 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 we spent all that time figuring out what the hell it was, and now, now, yeah. now we never hear about it. All I learned is it would be very difficult for me to implement. <laughs> yeah. All right. And the next one up is accelerate your website with a new Azure static web apps, enterprise edge. Azure is announcing the preview of this capability powered by the Azure front door service, which enables faster page loads, enhanced security and increased reliability of their global apps with no configuration or additional code required. Uh, the new features include enhanced DDoS protection, ability to dynamically switch between dynamic and static resources, depending on load and the health of your website infrastructure. And of course, deliver through the Azure global backbone and CDN network of Azure front door, shut the door. <laughs> Shut the front door. Yeah. I, I mean, this goes back to the, the the Gartner article. This is exactly what he was talking about, was the expanse of, you know, edge computing in this. I mean, yeah. this is really an Amplify competitor, like, in many ways. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I, when I read through it, I didn't really see a lot about distributed and where, you know, it's going to move certain processing to the edge. But, yes, it does give you edge delivery of static assets through the CDN, which is, it's- you know, part of the battle. Come on, it's a maintenance page when your site goes down. <laughs> Switch between dynamic and static resources depending on health. It's a maintenance page. It's it's the it's the twenty five year old guy with a with a shovel on the on the yellow triangle background. Sorry, our site's got a problem right now. Check back later. I mean, there are there are use cases <laughs> where you can. <laughs> I mean, there are use cases where you can you can do some things like if you you gener- you you need to generate a page. Update it every five minutes. You know, instead of instead of having that on every request, you could definitely create a static page that you know recycles every five minutes. But again, like those aren't things that this service is going to provide to you. This is a simple web hosting application for Azure. <laughs> the end of the day, it's a great idea. I mean, just if you imagine a news site or something, and there's no new news, the the content at that point is static, and it can serve static content through a CDN. I mean, that's how I feel. When about there's, when there's new news, you can switch in the dynamic content temporarily until the static site gets updated and switch it back again. I mean, it's It'd be a great way to turn off compute that you don't need when you don't need it. Like we should somehow work that into the show title for this episode. Like there's been no new news, so we should we should be static content at this point. 
<laughs> Static content. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Oracle. Uh, introducing the new shielded instances for OCI Compute. Uh, when Oracle, of course, isn't bashing AWS publicly or suing their customers, they focus on security as they're one of their key tenants of OCI. <laughs> OCI security-first design principles incorporate networking infrastructure security with isolated network virtualization and firmware security with the hardware-based root of trust, ensuring the host boot from a clean firmware for every customer. If you remember back about a year ago, they were beating up every other cloud provider for not doing this, uh, and they all said, we already do this, so Oracle shut up. Uh, but this is the first time, uh, you know, the Oracle has been on this path, of course. And so now they're adding shielded instances to the mix. So you get a secure UFI boot feature that prevents unauthorized bootloaders and systems from booting. Uh, the new capabilities include a measured boot, which complements and enhances the secure boot by storing measurements of boot components, such as bootloaders, drivers, and operating systems, and ensure that it doesn't change from one boot to the next. Uh, although I do pity you if you just install Windows updates because your system is not booting anytime soon. Uh, and your thing is now airing and telling you there's a security vulnerability of your host. Uh, and then, of course, the TPM has been updated to store all these boot measurements so they cannot be modified or messed with by uh, an end user of the server. So uh, I like this. That's good. Uh, but again, you know, it's Windows. You might have some problems. Is this is there a difference between this and an enclave or a confidential server from Azure? So this is really or is it the same thing. No, this is really about making sure your secure your server is as secure as possible and that it hasn't had no modifications to the firmware of you know the video card or the storage drivers and all these there's all these weird attack vectors if you're you know, giving physical and bare metal access to these servers that you could potentially put Trojan horses into. And so this is just ways to validate that these systems are constantly being booted and properly done. And, you know, there's some security, very high security frameworks that require this kind of validation. And the service provides that to you. It's less of an issue for virtualization. But, but yeah, if you, if you have dedicated hardware, then there were cases where um, attackers had, had flashed the firmware on, on a, a SCSI card or, or you know, done like a, a dynamic update on a, on a hard drive or something so that when a new tenant came along, which isn't going to happen very often if it's dedicated hardware, but that's beside the point, I guess. It's a potential a potential vector. Hmm. But of course, they, they you know, Supermicro is also a, a big uh, controversial story as well, and that kind of turned into nothing too, so I wouldn't be surprised if this is just a bit of hand-waving. Um, you know, again, they bought Sun. They, they have a hardware... You know, hardware in their DNA, <laughs> so they're going to do cool hardware things as much as they can because they like hardware. All right, well, that's it for new news this week, and it's off to the lightning round. Uh, which of you two would like to run lightning round since Peter's not here and I did not write uh, weekend update lightning rounds? <laughs> oh, we, we can all chime in with, with uh, sure, humorous you can take turns. winning contests. Yeah, sure. <laughs> all right, I'll start with the first one, and then uh, we'll just go through there. Shit. Okay. AWS Storage Gateway Management Console simplifies gateway creation and management. Of storage gateways? That seems yes. like a <laughs> bit of a run-on. Well, isn't there just one gateway? Uh, I mean, I depending know. on how many data centers you have, you could have multiples, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, never really, never used. I, I mean, it just feels like rat. You know, it just feels like turtles all the way down here. Like gateways management is creating more gateways, and they're just replicating and then installing Skynet, and we're all doomed. That's all I see. AWS Elastic Disaster Recovery now supports failback automation. Which is really unfair because they always supported it. You just had to re-implement the entire Elastic Disaster Recovery service to get the failback. I mean, so now you don't have to do that work. So I guess they technically support it. But I mean, they always had it. It's just a lot of work for you. I just wish I would have known this before I failed out my production services and couldn't restore them. Yeah, the only Elastic Disaster I've been involved with is adopting it in the first place. 
Now remediate operational issues faster by executing AWS Systems Manager automation runbooks from Slack. Oh, <laughs> uh, what could go I wrong got, there? I, I think we're good. We don't. Do we need to say anything funny? That's funny enough, right? <laughs> like, slash execute. I mean, uh, who else can we? Yeah. Who else can we execute? Well, <laughs> yeah, like uh, RM. You know, like minus RF. You know, root. That's fine, right? Yeah, we're good. No problem. Yeah, or, or like it accidentally, you know, takes a, URL, a weird URL, processes it in a weird way, and then sends a command to Slack. Oh, yeah. it's, it's got potential hacking vector, you know. Yeah. No worries. Well, no we worries don't need whatsoever. authentication. We trust our, yeah. our SRA teams. Yeah. We don't let anyone we don't trust into this channel, and they're perfect all the time. Always. Never make mistakes. Eddie, but Systems Manager Automation now enables you to take action in third-party applications through webhooks. Like removing everyone's access who just banished their, removed the root operating system from Slack. <laughs> I just think it was the fast button to the pager duty to page out for the, the thing that guy just did in Slack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's it. Short lightning round, like a short show that we yeah. had this evening in general. Yeah. I don't know if it was worthy of a point, though. No, uh, you know. I think uh, in true form, typically when Peter's not here, we don't really award points, right? Exactly. Well, it's, I mean, the rules are anything we want to do. So it's a new year. Yeah. Is there anything we want to do or anything Peter wants to do? Yeah, I don't think Peter wants to do anything. And, I, you know, he wants to let you be in the lead with your, with your one point for at least another week. So I think we can. I, I would, I would, yeah. I would like to bask in my glory for just one one more week. Yeah, it's fine. So I'm good with that. Uh, well, yeah, again, this is where I would tell you about things coming up. But uh, again, I did not do the homework. <laughs> uh, but, you know, someone did mention earlier that, you know, GCP Next is coming up. I'm sure it is sometime in 2022. I'm mm-hmm. sure reInvent's going to happen at some point. I'm sure Oracle Open World will happen maybe this year. Uh, and I'm sure Azure <laughs> has at least Ignite and Build, which they always have every year. So I'm sure those things are all coming up. And if you're really interested in those, if you just go to Google and you search for those, you can get those dates. I'm pretty sure. Well, not pretty sure, but high, somewhat likely you can find a date sometime. But again, if it's going to happen or not, Omicron, by the time we get there, it'll probably be, you know, Aardvark, you know, variant because we were in the double letters at that point. Uh, you know, and the Aardvark variant will keep us from going to one of these things. So, you know, I don't know if they'll actually happen, but at least they'll pretend that they're going to happen sometime later in the year. But if you do have suggestions for things coming up, you know, feel free to tweet or me, uh, Twitter at me or, or send me a message on our Slack team, or you can just email me, justin at thecloudpod.net, and uh, give me your things that you think I should pimp coming up. And I take all suggestions, uh, you know, at least for a little while until I have too many things to talk about. But uh, I will do the homework at some point when I'm not super busy at work so it's on my to-do list <laughs> I, I saw on the list this morning i said yeah that's not gonna happen by recording because it's not at that time but you just 2022 saw. has been a very long year it's been a very long year i mean we're three weeks into it and i am ready for 2023 already yeah you've just completely cursed 2022 by saying i'm sure these things are probably going to happen and then listed them all i'm like oh god what's going to happen now <laughs> Yes. I just keep thinking about the, all the memes that were like the pronunciation of 2022, mm-hmm. like, you know, 2020.2, you know, the second revision. Like, it just feels, well, the one I, I don't know if it just planted the seed in my head, but feeling it, so feeling I, I, it real hard right now. I'm going to date yeah. myself, but I'm turning 40 this year, so I guess it's fun to date myself at this point. I'm old enough. Uh, but, you know, I graduated in 2000, which, you know, our chant was something something about double ought. And I always thought that was the weirdest, you know, because we're the class of double ought. And I was like, what? What does that mean? Like. So, you know, these weird acronyms that we use for the last two digits to like 22 or 23 and all that, they're always weird. They've been weird since 2000. Yeah. So, I was like calling yeah. it the noughties. 
There's also the <laughs> the double aughts. That was I don't know. I always hear it back in the day. Uh-huh. But anyways, yeah. But I'm I'm a barely a millennial at the bubble, and all these young whippersnappers have new crazy things, like children included, which I just don't understand. So. <laughs> and that's why I know that I'm turning 40 this year because it all makes no sense yeah. to me. I'm, I'm completely lost yeah. in all these things. So there you go. Just start reading about Web three. You'll be you'll be fine. Oh, <laughs> I tried. I tried to read that and I just bailed out. I was like, "Yeah, I, I think I think this is my sign. It's time to retire from my career <laughs> before Web three yeah. becomes popular." Because uh, yeah. I'm not sure I can I can handle that. I'm just going to refer everybody to one of our very earliest episodes when we talked about you know um, cloud providers providing distributed um, blockchain. And the whole point of block distributed things were that, were that they were distributed and not run by a single vendor. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, when it comes to Web, web three, like, yeah, re- refer back to that episode and realize that the thing that you think you're going to own, you're not going to own. Somebody else is going to own it. It's just going to be the, the same same shit, different day. Well, I, I still don't understand NFTs. Maybe well, maybe one of these days, do you guys can understand? You can explain NFTs to me somehow. I'll sell you one. <laughs> we should release an episode as an NFT. Ooh. You, a custom okay. episode. I am not volunteering to mm-hmm. do any of that work and those shenanigans, <laughs> but if you guys want to do that, I am all for it. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's what I was saying. Sponsorship is through an NFT. Just buy the NFT for there the we episode. Go. Sponsor. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but um, yeah, I don't want to do that, but uh, you know, I, I, I happen to own AMC stock because uh, I bought some with friends back when you know it was supposed to be like the next big you know meme stock or whatever. And so I own some AMC stock uh, and I'm a shareholder. And so, you know, of course they, AMC's big solution to solving their problems, they're going to NFT. So then they, they sent me an NFT for free. That is, I own AMC stock NFT. And I thought this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I don't understand any of this and get off my lawn. And I should sell the stock if it wasn't so underwater right now, uh, just in principle on the fact that they sell, sent me. That is super hilarious. Yeah, there you go. So anyways, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my experience with NFTs. <laughs> It's you know, again my my hundred dollar investment into AMC stock that was supposed to become the next big uh, you know uh, was it G- GameStop was supposed to be the next one before that was big mm-hmm. yeah but you know that didn't pan out but it, none of those things ever do that's why you don't put any money into them for reals <laughs> at least I ho- hope not like like bad relationships you just held on to them just for a little bit too long just a little <laughs> bit too long yeah I had that pop a little while ago I should have sold then but I didn't because I was stupid but yeah. it's all good all fine. And if you uh, you still follow meme stocks, they tell you just keep buying more at this depleted price because it's just going to go up someday. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not so confident in movie theaters these days. I wouldn't put any more money into that. <laughs> uh, anyways, I would, but I can't find all the money I buried in my backyard. So yeah, well, at least I don't have. A, at least I'm one of those people with a story of like, well, you know, I bought Bitcoin back when they were you know hundred dollars a Bitcoin, and then I had it on an external hard drive I locked in my attic, and I can't find. Yeah. It. <laughs> you know, those stories always are like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll have another fantastic week in the cloud. We'll see you next week. Hopefully, it'll be a little little quieter uh, on the day front, day job front. Or more upbeat. Well, hopefully, we'll be rested. Yeah, hopefully. And it'll be 2023. Or <laughs> arrested and put in a cell and kept, kept away from civilization. <laughs> like, <laughs> And who knows? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll have things coming up next week because a lot of listeners will help me out and send me stuff. So, <laughs> I don't think it'll happen, but I, I can dream. So. It's just it's my worst nightmare. Like uh, going to jail or something, and then realizing that someone's gonna knock on my cell and say, "Hey, we heard you know about computers." I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> anyway, yeah. There's this new Apple TV Plus show coming out uh, called Severance, uh, or yeah, I think, and they basically the idea is that you, when you go to work, you forget your personal life, but then when you leave work, you forget your work life, and so you switch back and forth to these two contexts. 
and uh, I'm sure hilarity will ensue, and nothing bad will happen out of this. But uh, <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of. You guys talking about this, like, how many 2023 wake up tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, or maybe we'll be in a dystopian future. That's terrible. So there you go. <laughs> Anyways, have a great week. <laughs> and on that note, bye everybody. Bye. Bye. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.